Chapter 7, As a Child. This chapter is based on Luke 2, 39 and 40. The childhood and youth of Jesus were spent in a little mountain village. There was no place on earth that would not have been honored by His presence. The palaces of kings would have been privileged in receiving Him as a guest. But He passed by the homes of wealth, the courts of royalty, and the renowned seats of learning, to make His home in obscure and despised Nazareth. Wonderful in its significance is the brief record of His early life. The child grew, and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. In the sunlight of his Father's countenance, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. His mind was active and penetrating, with a thoughtfulness and wisdom beyond his years. Yet his character was beautiful in its symmetry. The powers of mind and body developed gradually in keeping with the laws of childhood. As a child, Jesus manifested a peculiar loveliness of disposition. His willing hands were ever ready to serve others. He manifested a patience that nothing could disturb, and a truthfulness that would never sacrifice integrity. In principle, firm as a rock, His life revealed the grace of unselfish courtesy. With deep interest, the mother of Jesus watched the unfolding of His powers, and beheld the impress of perfection upon His character. With delight, she sought to encourage that bright, receptive mind. Through the Holy Spirit she received wisdom to cooperate with the heavenly agencies in the development of this child, who could claim only God as His Father. From the earliest times the faithful in Israel had given much care to the education of the youth. The Lord had directed that even from babyhood the children should be taught of His goodness and His greatness, especially as revealed in His law, and shown in the history of Israel. Song and prayer and lessons from the Scriptures were to be adapted to the opening mind. Fathers and mothers were to instruct their children that the law of God is an expression of His character, and that as they received the principles of the law into the heart, the image of God was traced on mind and soul. Much of the teaching was oral, but the youth also learned to read the holy writings, and the parchment rolls of the Old Testament Scriptures were open to their study. In the days of Christ, the town or city that did not provide for the religious instruction of the young was regarded as under the curse of God. Yet the teaching had become formal. Tradition had, in a great degree, supplanted the Scriptures. True education would lead the youth to seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after Him and find Him. Acts chapter 17, verse 27. But the Jewish teachers gave their attention to matters of ceremony. The mind was crowded with material that was worthless to the learner, and would not be recognized in the higher school of the courts above. 
the experience which is obtained through a personal acceptance of God's Word had no place in the educational system. Absorbed in the round of externals, the students found no quiet hours to spend with God. They did not hear His voice speaking to the heart. In their search after knowledge, they turned away from the source of wisdom. The great essentials of the service of God were neglected. The principles of the law were obscured. That which was regarded as superior education was the greatest hindrance to real development. Under the training of the rabbis, the powers of the youth were repressed. Their minds became cramped and narrow. The child Jesus did not receive instruction in the synagogue schools. His mother was his first human teacher. From her lips and from the scrolls of the prophets he learned of heavenly things. The very words which he himself had spoken to Moses for Israel he was now taught at his mother's knee. As he advanced from childhood to youth, he did not seek the schools of the rabbis. He needed not the education to be obtained from such sources, for God was his instructor. The question asked during the Savior's ministry, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned, does not indicate that Jesus was unable to read, but merely that he had not received a rabbinical education. John chapter 7, verse 15. Since he gained knowledge, as we may do, his intimate acquaintance with the Scripture shows how diligently his early years were given to the study of God's Word. And spread out before him was the great library of God's created works. He who had made all things studied the lessons which his own hand had written in earth and sea and sky. Apart from the unholy ways of the world, he gathered stores of scientific knowledge from nature. He studied the life of plants and animals and the life of man. From his earliest years he was possessed of one purpose. He lived to bless others. For this he found resources in nature. New ideas of ways and means flashed into his mind as he studied plant and animal life. Continually he was seeking to draw from things seen illustrations by which to present the living oracles of God. The parables by which during his ministry he loved to teach his lessons of truth show how open his spirit was to the influences of nature, and how he had gathered the spiritual teaching from the surroundings of his daily life. Thus to Jesus the significance of the Word and the works of God was unfolded, as he was trying to understand the reason of things. Heavenly beings were his attendants, and the culture of holy thoughts and communings was his. From the first dawning of intelligence he was constantly growing in spiritual grace and knowledge of truth. Every child may gain knowledge as Jesus did. As we try to become acquainted with our Heavenly Father through His Word, angels will draw near, our minds will be strengthened, our characters will be elevated and refined. We shall become more like our Savior.
and as we behold the beautiful and grand in nature, our affections go out after God. While the spirit is awed, the soul is invigorated by coming in contact with the infinite through His works. Communion with God through prayer develops the mental and moral faculties, and the spiritual powers strengthen as we cultivate thoughts upon spiritual things. The life of Jesus was a life in harmony with God. While He was a child, He thought and spoke as a child. But no trace of sin marred the image of God within Him. Yet He was not exempt from temptation. The inhabitants of Nazareth were proverbial for their wickedness. The low estimate in which they were generally held is shown by Nathanael's question, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? John chapter 1, verse 46. Jesus was placed where His character would be tested. It was necessary for Him to be constantly on guard in order to preserve His purity. He was subject to all the conflicts which we have to meet, that He might be an example to us in childhood, youth, and manhood. Satan was unwearied in his efforts to overcome the child of Nazareth. From his earliest years Jesus was guarded by heavenly angels, yet his life was one long struggle against the powers of darkness. That there should be upon the earth one life free from the defilement of evil was an offense and a perplexity to the prince of darkness. He left no means untried to ensnare Jesus. No child of humanity will ever be called to live a life holy amid so fierce a conflict with temptation as was our Savior. The parents of Jesus were poor and dependent upon their daily toil. He was familiar with poverty, self-denial, and privation. This experience was a safeguard to Him. In His industrious life, there were no idle moments to invite temptation. No aimless hours opened the way for corrupting associations. So far as possible, He closed the door to the tempter. Neither gain nor pleasure, applause nor censure, could induce Him to consent to a wrong act. He was wise to discern evil, and strong to resist it. Christ was the only sinless one who ever dwelt on earth. Yet for nearly thirty years He lived among the wicked inhabitants of Nazareth. This fact is a rebuke to those who think themselves dependent upon place, fortune, or prosperity in order to live a blameless life. Temptation, poverty, adversity is the very discipline needed to develop purity and firmness. Jesus lived in a peasant's home, and faithfully and cheerfully acted His part in bearing the burdens of the household. He had been the commander of heaven, and angels had delighted to fulfill His word. Now He was a willing servant, a loving, obedient son. He learned a trade, and with His own hands worked in the carpenter shop with Joseph. In the simple garb of a common laborer, He walked the streets of the little town, going to and returning from His humble work. He did not employ His divine power to lessen His burdens or to lighten His toil. 
As Jesus worked in childhood and youth, mind and body were developed. He did not use His physical powers recklessly, but in such a way as to keep them in health, that He might do the best work in every line. He was not willing to be defective even in the handling of tools. He was perfect as a workman, as He was perfect in character. By His own example He taught that it is our duty to be industrious, that our work should be performed with exactness and thoroughness, and that such labor is honorable. The exercise that teaches the hands to be useful and trains the body to bear their share of life's burdens gives physical strength and develops every faculty. All should find something to do that will be beneficial to themselves and helpful to others. God appointed work as a blessing, and only the diligent worker finds the true glory and joy of life. The approval of God rests with loving assurance upon children and youth who cheerfully take their part in the duties of the household, sharing the burdens of father and mother. Such children will go out from the home to be useful members of society. Throughout His life on earth, Jesus was an earnest and constant worker. He expected much, therefore He attempted much. After He had entered on His ministry, He said, I must work the works of Him that sent Me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. John chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus did not shirk care and responsibility, as do many who profess to be His followers. It is because they seek to evade this discipline that so many are weak and inefficient. They may possess precious and amiable traits, but they are nerveless and almost useless when difficulties are to be met or obstacles surmounted. The positiveness and energy, the solidity and strength of character manifested in Christ, are to be developed in us through the same discipline that He endured, and the grace that He received is for us. So long as He lived among men, our Savior shared the lot of the poor. He knew by experience their cares and hardships, and He could comfort and encourage all humble workers. Those who have a true conception of the teaching of His life will never feel that a distinction must be made between classes, that the rich are to be honored above the worthy poor. Jesus carried into His labor cheerfulness and tact. It requires much patience and spirituality to bring Bible religion into the home life and into the workshop to bear the strain of worldly business and yet keep the eye single to the glory of God. This is where Christ was a helper. He was never so full of worldly care as to have no time or thought for heavenly things. Often He expressed the gladness of His heart by singing psalms and heavenly songs. Often the dwellers in Nazareth heard His voice raised in praise and thanksgiving to God. He held communion with heaven in song, and as His companions complained of weariness from labor, they were cheered by the sweet melody from His lips. His praise seemed to banish the evil angels, and like incense fill the place with fragrance. The minds of His hearers were carried away from their earthly exile to the heavenly home.
Jesus was the fountain of healing, mercy for the world. And through all those secluded years at Nazareth, His life flowed out in currents of sympathy and tenderness. The aged, the sorrowing, and the sin-burdened, the children at play in their innocent joy, little creatures of the groves, the patient beasts of burden, all were happier for His presence. He whose word of power upheld the worlds would stoop to relieve a wounded bird. There was nothing beneath His notice, nothing to which He disdained to minister. Thus, as He grew in wisdom and stature, Jesus increased in favor with God and man. He drew the sympathy of all hearts by showing Himself capable of sympathizing with all. The atmosphere of hope and courage that surrounded Him made Him a blessing in every home. And often in the synagogue on the Sabbath day He was called upon to read the lesson from the prophets. And the hearts of the hearers thrilled as a new light shone out from the familiar words of the sacred text. Yet Jesus shunned display. During all the years of His stay in Nazareth, He made no exhibition of His miraculous power. He sought no high position and assumed no titles. His quiet and simple life, and even the silence of the Scriptures concerning His early years, teach an important lesson. The more quiet and simple the life of the child, the more free from artificial excitement, and the more in harmony with nature, the more favorable is it to physical and mental vigor and to spiritual strength. Jesus is our example. There are many who dwell with interest upon the period of His public ministry, while they pass unnoticed the teaching of His early years. But it is in His home life that He is the pattern for all children and youth. The Savior condescended to poverty that He might teach how closely we in a humble lot may walk with God. He lived to please, honor, and glorify His Father in the common things of life. His work began in consecrating the lowly trade of the craftsmen who toil for their daily bread. He was doing God's service just as much when laboring at the carpenter's bench as when working miracles for the multitude. And every youth who follows Christ's example of faithfulness and obedience in his lowly home may claim these words spoken of him by the Father through the Holy Spirit. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Chapter 8, The Passover Visit. This chapter is based on Luke 2, 41 to 51. Among the Jews, the twelfth year was the dividing line between childhood and youth. On completing this year, a Hebrew boy was called a son of the law, and also a son of God. He was given special opportunities for religious instruction, and was expected to participate in the sacred feasts and observances. It was in accordance with this custom 
that Jesus in His boyhood made the Passover visit to Jerusalem. Like all devout Israelites, Joseph and Mary went up every year to attend the Passover. And when Jesus had reached the required age, they took Him with them. There were three annual feasts, the Passover, the Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, at which all the men of Israel were commanded to appear before the Lord at Jerusalem. Of these feasts, the Passover was the most largely attended. Many were present from all countries where the Jews were scattered. From every part of Palestine the worshipers came in great numbers. The journey from Galilee occupied several days, and the travelers united in large companies for companionship and protection. The women and aged men rode upon oxen or asses over the deep and rocky roads. The stronger men and the youth journeyed on foot. The time of the Passover corresponded to the close of March or the beginning of April, and the whole land was bright with flowers and glad with the song of birds. All along the way were spots memorable in the history of Israel, and fathers and mothers recounted to their children the wonders that God had wrought for His people in ages past. They beguiled their journey with song and music, and when at last the towers of Jerusalem came into view, every voice joined in the triumphant strain, Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Peace be within thy walls, and prosperity within thy palaces. Psalms 122, verses 2-7. through The observance of the Passover began with the birth of the Hebrew nation. On the last night of their bondage in Egypt, when there appeared no token of deliverance, God commanded them to prepare for an immediate release. He had warned Pharaoh of the final judgment on the Egyptians, and He directed the Hebrews to gather their families within their own dwellings. Having sprinkled the doorposts with the blood of the slain lamb, they were to eat the lamb roasted with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And thus shall ye eat it, he said, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. At midnight all the firstborn of the Egyptians were slain. Then the king sent to Israel the message, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, and go, serve the Lord, as ye have said. Exodus chapter 12, verse 31. The Hebrews went out from Egypt an independent nation. The Lord had commanded that the Passover should be yearly kept. It shall come to pass, he said, when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians. Thus from generation to generation the story of this wonderful deliverance was to be repeated. The Passover was followed by the seven days' feast of unleavened bread. 
On the second day of the feast, the first fruits of the year's harvest, a sheaf of barley, was presented before the Lord. All the ceremonies of the feast were types of the work of Christ. The deliverance of Israel from Egypt was an object lesson of redemption, which the Passover was intended to keep in memory. The slain lamb, the unleavened bread, the sheaf of firstfruits represented the Savior. With most of the people in the days of Christ, the observance of this feast had degenerated into formalism. But what was its significance to the Son of God? For the first time the child Jesus looked upon the temple. He saw the white-robed priest performing their solemn ministry. He beheld the bleeding victim upon the altar of sacrifice. With the worshipers he bowed in prayer, while the cloud of incense ascended before God. He witnessed the impressive rites of the paschal service. Day by day he saw their meaning more clearly. Every act seemed to be bound up with his own life. New impulses were awakening within him. Silent and absorbed, he seemed to be studying out a great problem. The mystery of his mission was opening to the Savior. Wrapped in the contemplation of these scenes, he did not remain beside his parents. He sought to be alone. When the paschal services were ended, he still lingered in the temple courts, and when the worshipers departed from Jerusalem, he was left behind. In this visit to Jerusalem, the parents of Jesus wished to bring him in connection with the great teachers in Israel. While he was obedient to every particular to the Word of God, he did not conform to the rabbinical rites and usages. Joseph and Mary hoped that he might be led to reverence the learned rabbis, and give more diligent heed to their requirements. But Jesus in the temple had been taught by God. That which he had received he began at once to impart. At that day an apartment connected with the temple was devoted to a sacred school, after the manner of the schools of the prophets. Here leading rabbis with their pupils assembled, and hither the child Jesus came. Seating himself at the feet of these grave, learned men, he listened to their instruction. As one seeking for wisdom, he questioned these teachers in regard to the prophecies and to events then taking place that pointed to the advent of the Messiah. Jesus presented Himself as one thirsting for a knowledge of God. His questions were suggestive of deep truths which had long been obscured, yet which were vital to the salvation of souls. While showing how narrow and superficial was the wisdom of the wise men, every question put before them a divine lesson, and placed truth in a new aspect. The rabbis spoke of the wonderful elevation which the Messiah's coming would bring to the Jewish nation. But Jesus presented the prophecy of Isaiah, and asked them the meaning of those scriptures that point to the suffering and death of the Lamb of God. The doctors turned upon Him with questions, and they were amazed at His answers. With the humility of a child He repeated the words of Scripture giving them a depth of meaning that the wise men had not conceived of. 
It followed the lines of truth he pointed out would have worked a reformation in the religion of the day. A deep interest in spiritual things would have been awakened, and when Jesus began His ministry, many would have been prepared to receive Him. The rabbis knew that Jesus had not been instructed in their schools, yet His understanding of the prophecies far exceeded theirs. In this thoughtful Galilean boy they discerned great promise. They desired to gain him as a student, that he might become a teacher in Israel. They wanted to have charge of his education, feeling that a mind so original must be brought under their molding. The words of Jesus had moved their hearts, as they had never before been moved by words from human lips. God was seeking to give light to those leaders in Israel, and He used the only means by which they could be reached. In their pride they would have scorned to admit that they could receive instruction from anyone. If Jesus had appeared to be trying to teach them, they would have disdained to listen. But they flattered themselves that they were teaching Him, or at least testing His knowledge of the Scriptures. The youthful modesty and grace of Jesus disarmed their prejudices. Unconsciously their minds were opened to the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit spoke to their hearts. They could not but see that their expectation in regard to the Messiah was not sustained by prophecy, but they would not renounce the theories that had flattered their ambition. They would not admit that they had misapprehended the Scriptures they claimed to teach. From one to another passed the inquiry, How hath this youth knowledge having never learned. The light was shining in darkness, but the darkness apprehended it not. John chapter 1, verse 5, Revised Version. Meanwhile Joseph and Mary were in great perplexity and distress. In the departure from Jerusalem they had lost sight of Jesus, and they knew not that He had tarried behind. The country was then densely populated, and the caravans from Galilee were very large. There was much confusion as they left the city. On the way the pleasure of traveling with friends and acquaintances absorbed their attention, and they did not notice His absence till night came on. Then, as they halted for rest, they missed the helpful hand of their child. Supposing Him to be with their company, they had felt no anxiety. Yet as He was, they had trusted Him implicitly, expecting that when needed He would be ready to assist them, anticipating their wants, as He had always done. But now their fears were roused. They searched for Him throughout their company, but in vain. Shuddering, they remembered how Herod had tried to destroy Him in His infancy. Dark forebodings filled their hearts. They bitterly reproached themselves. Returning to Jerusalem, they pursued their search. The next day, as they mingled with the worshipers in the temple, a familiar voice arrested their attention. They could not mistake it. No other voice was like His, so serious and earnest, yet so full of melody. In the school of the rabbis they found Jesus. Rejoiced as they were, they could not forget their grief and anxiety. When He was with them again, the mother said in words that implied reproof, 
Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. How is it that ye sought me? answered Jesus. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And as they seemed not to understand his words, he pointed upward. On his face was a light at which they wondered. Divinity was flashing through humanity. On finding him in the temple, they had listened to what was passing between him and the rabbis, and they were astonished at his questions and answers. His words started a train of thought that would never be forgotten. And his question to them had a lesson. Wist ye not, he said, that I must be about my father's business? Jesus was engaged in the work that he had come into the world to do, but Joseph and Mary had neglected theirs. God had shown them high honor in committing to him his son. Holy angels had directed the course of Joseph in order to preserve the life of Jesus, but for an entire day they had lost sight of him whom they should not have forgotten for a moment. And when their anxiety was relieved, they had not censored themselves, but had cast the blame upon him. It was natural for the parents of Jesus to look upon him as their own child. He was daily with them. His life in many respects was like that of other children, and it was difficult for them to realize that he was the Son of God. They were in danger of failing to appreciate the blessing granted them in the presence of the world's Redeemer, the grief of their separation from Him, and the gentle reproof which His words conveyed were designed to impress them with the sacredness of their trust. In the answer to His mother, Jesus showed for the first time that He understood His relation to God. Before His birth the angel had said to Mary, he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. These words Mary had pondered in her heart. Yet while she believed that her child was to be Israel's Messiah, she did not comprehend his mission. Now she did not understand his words, but she knew that he had disclaimed kinship to Joseph, and had declared his sonship to God. Jesus did not ignore his relation to his earthly parents. From Jerusalem he returned home with them, and aided them in their life of toil. He hid in his own heart the mystery of his mission, waiting submissively for the appointed time for him to enter upon his work. For eighteen years after he had recognized that he was the Son of God, he acknowledged the tie that bound him to the home at Nazareth, and performed the duties of a son, a brother, a friend, and a citizen. As his mission had opened to Jesus in the temple, he shrank from contact with the multitude. He wished to return from Jerusalem in quietness with those who knew the secret of His life. By the Paschal service, God was seeking to call His people away from their worldly cares, and to remind them of His wonderful work in their deliverance from Egypt. In this work, He desired them to see a promise of deliverance from sin. 
as the blood of the slain lamb sheltered the homes of Israel, so the blood of Christ was to save their souls. But they could be saved through Christ only, as by faith they should make His life their own. There was virtue in the symbolic service only as it directed the worshipers to Christ as their personal Savior. God desired that they should be led to prayerful study and meditation in regard to Christ's mission. But as the multitudes left Jerusalem, the excitement of travel and social intercourse too often absorbed their attention, and the service they had witnessed was forgotten. The Savior was not attracted to their company. As Joseph and Mary should return from Jerusalem alone with Jesus, he hoped to direct their minds to the prophecies of the suffering Savior. Upon Calvary he sought to lighten his mother's grief. He was thinking of her now. Mary was to witness his last agony, and Jesus desired her to understand his mission, that she might be strengthened to endure when the sword should pierce through her soul. As Jesus had been separated from her, and she had sought Him sorrowing three days, so when He should be offered up for the sins of the world, He would again be lost to her for three days. And as He should come forth from the tomb, her sorrow would again be turned to joy. But how much better she could have borne the anguish of His death if she had understood the Scriptures to which He was now trying to turn her thoughts. If Joseph and Mary had stayed their minds upon God by meditation and prayer, they would have realized the sacredness of their trust, and would not have lost sight of Jesus. By one day's neglect they lost the Savior. But it cost them three days of anxious search to find Him. So with us, by idle talk, evil speaking, or neglect of prayer, we may in one day lose the Savior's presence, and it may take many days of sorrowful search to find Him, and regain the peace that we have lost. In our association with one another, we should take heed lest we forget Jesus, and pass along unmindful that He is not with us. When we become absorbed in worldly things, so that we have no thought for Him, in which our hope of eternal life is centered, we separate ourselves from Jesus and from heavenly angels. These holy beings cannot remain where the Savior's presence is not desired, and His absence is not marked. This is why discouragement so often exists among the professed followers of Christ. Many attend religious services, and are refreshed and comforted by the Word of God, but through neglect of meditation, watchfulness, and prayer, they lose the blessing, and find themselves more destitute than before they received it. Often they feel that God has dealt hardly with them. They do not see that the fault is their own. By separating themselves from Jesus, they have shut away the light of His presence. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point, and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon His great sacrifice for us, 
Our confidence in Him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with His Spirit. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. As we associate together, we may be a blessing to one another. If we are Christ's, our sweetest thoughts will be of Him. We shall love to talk of Him. And as we speak to one another of His love, our hearts will be softened by divine influences. Beholding the beauty of His character, we shall be changed into the same image from glory to glory.